Well, I wonder what you made of the recent census results. Uh, perhaps you didn't pay much attention, which is fine. Uh, but one thing it showed was that people who identify as Christians are now below 50% of the population in Australia. There's been a fall from 95% Christian at the beginning of last century to 43.9% now. And almost 40% or 10 million people in Australia report having no religion. Did you think? Well, no surprises there. Uh, or did you think it's something to worry about? Uh, I've seen a number of responses. Some Christian leaders are happy that the figures now better reflect what people believe and do. To them, the figure shows little more than that Christian nominalism uh, is continuing in decline. But I know many of us would like more people to know and follow Jesus. And to do that, I think we need to think about why people say they have no religion. In the census, uh, I still think uh, it's a pity that religion is seen as an allegiance to a particular God or system of spirituality. Uh, to my mind, a better definition of religion is a way of understanding why the world exists and how it works. Uh, you will find that definition in our dictionaries along with the quest for values of the ideal life and recognition of a continuing superhuman power entitled to obedience and worship. But my preferred definition of a way of understanding why the world exists and, and how it works doesn't fit with those who want to see organised religion fade away. A secularism and atheism are both ways of understanding the world or quests for the ideal life, but their advocates don't like the idea that they are religions. To my mind, everyone is religious. Everyone has a way of understanding why the world exists, even if it's just a big cosmic accident. And they generally think their idea of the way to live is better, or at least as good as, any other. Uh, atheism is a system of understanding the world without a god. But back to the census. What is it about Christianity that people don't want? I think it's more than the baggage of 2,000 years of church history or the bigotry and hypocrisy of some Christians. Still a majority of Australians believe there is a higher power. And many more believe that there is more to life than simple physical existence. Good and love and hope are transcendent ideas that many share and are not seen simply as mechanical outputs of our brains. Surveys suggest that 70% or more of Australians believe in some higher power. They're okay with a benign, non-intrusive power, but not the God that Paul talks about in this letter. The God Paul speaks of here holds that there is such a thing as sin, the rejection of God and his ways and a difference between the ways of God and the ways of the world. Uh, and that is what many people don't want. They don't like being told that there is a good way to live life that is different from theirs. 
or that they are sometimes wrong. Paul's talk of being dead in our transgressions and sins only makes sense if we're prepared to admit that we are not as good as we should be. Uh, If we know uh, that we fall below the standards set by God. If we're prepared to recognise that we can be angry, selfish or hypocritical or, or not care for others as we should. And accept that those failings those fallings short actually matter and feel that we carry the consequences of those failures with us. We can't just leave them behind. I bet you can think of things you did from the age of five which you wish you hadn't done. I certainly can. I can think of things at every stage of my life that I wish I hadn't done. The Apostle Paul shows us a good way to put those things behind us. But only if we don't try and find the ways to do that within ourselves. Part of Paul's message is that we can't absolve ourselves of the bad things that we do. Only God can do that. And we live in a time when we are happy to make excuses for ourselves or others. Uh, to not aim too high, because we know that we all fall short. We're used to apologies that don't really feel sincere or, uh, or from the heart. They're not sincere expressions of regret for doing wrong. Sorry. The word mistake is often used in ways that drive me mad. To hear a footballer who has chosen to drink a substantial amount of alcohol and then driven a car or punched Uh, got into a fight or punched his girlfriend, and they say, sorry, I made a mistake. A mistake is when you put your jumper on the wrong way round. It is not when you deliberately drink a dozen or more beers and then hurt or jeopardise something. We just don't have the right language today to accept that we do deliberately do things that hurt other people. In our second reading today, the Apostle Paul speaks of people being dead in their transgressions and sins. There is an objective sense of deadness, being cut off from God, and also a subjective sense of deadness. We just know somehow we're fooling ourselves if we really think that gratifying ourselves is what life is all about. Our relationships are not as we would like them to be. There are some things we just can't allow ourselves to think about too much. We just have to try and block them out. Not deal with them, just block them out. This sense of deadness can happen when we look inward for meaning and identity and try to justify our lives to ourselves. Or when we try to find meaning in the things we do or in copying others who seem to be having more fun than us are more successful than us. But we're never sure if that's quite right for us. Often we have a sense that it isn't. But, but, but where do we find what is right? Paul contrasts this with being made alive in Jesus. By following Jesus, we can leave behind those bad memories, those disappointments, those things that hold us back, We can leave behind the sense of deadness 
As we sing in the hymn, Take My Life, we sing, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. Uh, That's the story of my life, just in one verse. Uh, We're not going to sing that song uh, after the sermon because I think Amazing Grace will, will fit us better. For Paul says we become alive by the grace and kindness of God. For all who have felt it, it really is amazing grace. In doing that, Paul puts his finger on a great paradox that underlies the reason why many people reject Jesus as their saviour. Most people like kindness and are happy to get something for, for nothing, which is the basic idea of grace. A free gift of forgiveness and a new life. But they don't want to admit that they need that kindness or that God offers or what God offers for free in his grace. They'd rather do it their own way, even if they're not sure, or they end up hurt or anxious or lonely or unhappy. I'll just keep going with my way. The thinking can be, I don't need God's kindness or grace because I'm not a bad person. I may not be perfect, but, 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 but who is? But I want you to know that basically I am a good person and I don't need anything from God. And if that's the case, I don't need God. And because it's a bit awkward if there is a God to not need him, I'll take the next logical step and say there is no God. There might be a higher power, but not a personal God who knows what I do and think and might take an interest in those things. Or might even have a better way to live than the one I'm making for myself. So I'll pick the no religion box and get on with being the best version of me that I can be, on my own, looking inwards for all the insights and affirmation I can give myself. I just want to be true to myself. I know people think like this. Not just because I've read books and articles that say it, because I have been to high school graduations where inevitably everyone wants to say that I just want to be true to myself. But more than that, I know this is true because it's the way that I lived my life. From my mid-teens through to the age of 30, I did some good. I worked in prisons and in legal aid and served the justice system of our state. And I tried to balance that with a reasonably hedonistic lifestyle. Not outrageous by the standards of some, but I was not quite the quiet, sober, chaste life that the Apostle Paul would recommend. But I was just trying to work it out for myself, copying what people did around me. It didn't feel right, but if I kept doing it, then sooner or later it might. And what happened next is really important. For the first step was not being convinced that I was living a sinful life. I did not give a thought to the fact that I might be dead in my transgressions and sins. I didn't see a clear choice between following the ways of God 
or the ways of the world. I didn't see myself as gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, as Paul says. Although, as I look back there, there was some of that there. So what happened? If I was not convinced of my sin, what happened? Well, I I met Jesus. I'd never really given him a thought before. I had tried reading a gospel, but more so that I could say that I'd read the Bible, not because I was genuinely interested in finding out about God. But at the age of 30, I met some people in Singapore who did believe in Jesus and found their meaning and joy and purpose in him. They shared what they knew and liked about Jesus. I didn't feel God's wrath for me or my sinful ways, although I realised I needed to change some things. As I look back, I can see why God would not have liked the way that I lived. But it was not a sense of God's righteous anger that changed me. It was the person of Jesus. The Jesus we meet in his love and care for outcasts. The Jesus we meet in his teaching, his parables, his vision of the better life. The Jesus we see through the extraordinary steps he took to make things right for me by his sacrificial death on the cross for me, by dying the death that I deserved. I could not get over that. I couldn't get over what he'd done for me. It still chokes me up when I think about it. I need the whole of Lent to prepare myself to go through, to relive what Jesus actually did on the cross for me. But through that, I came to see that Jesus loved me, that he was kind and gracious, and that only then did I really realise that my former life was not the good life it was supposed to be. I was, in some sense, dead. I think we see that movement in a number of stories in the Bible. Uh, The woman at the well was fascinated in Jesus, who offered her living water. Why is he talking to me? What's he doing? What? Oh, this sounds good. She saw so much good and hope in him before she confessed her sins. And we will all have felt this aliveness with Jesus differently and at different times of our life. But for me, it's one of the best parts of being a Christian to actually feel that you are the person that God had made you to be. As I gradually got used to the idea of being loved by Jesus, I felt alive for the first time in my life. I was so excited by the Jesus I met in the Bible. Bible study was the highlight of my week. I felt my life was worth living, that I didn't have to prove anything to anyone. I was still caught up in my career as a lawyer, but even that became less important and less a part of who I was and because I was becoming someone different in Jesus. I felt loved by Jesus and by some of his followers, and that would always be enough. Isn't that an amazing thought? To be loved by Jesus and his followers is enough for the rest of my life. 
And that is what the Apostle Paul describes here. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9, he sets out one of the clearest and most beautiful expressions of the Christian gospel, which is, I know, the story of many of our lives. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. We can't do it just by looking inwards. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I don't sit in heaven now, and I, but I know I will. And I know even now that I am with him despite my ongoing failings. Each day he walks with me. And I'm sure that there are some for whom being convinced that their lives are a mess was the first step and they needed Jesus to get out of that mess. And there were things they needed to do before they could accept God's kindness and grace. We, we all come to Jesus in different ways. Jesus said, repent and believe. But for many, it is only when we see the beauty and wonder of Jesus that the need for repentance becomes apparent. And repentance comes not so much out of a fear of judgment, but out of a sense of wanting to do the right thing by Jesus, to live in a way that pleases him. Uh, I can never repay Jesus for him dying for me. But I can at least live a life that makes his sacrifice worthwhile. I was going to say that I think that many people tick the no religion box for the wrong reason. And if they think you have to be a repressed, rule-keeping bigot to be a Christian, then they are wrong. But I think many people tick the no religion box for the right reason. They don't think they need to change. They don't want to change. They don't want anything for nothing, however amazing we think it is. They want to find the answers within themselves and there is no room for a God who loves and saves. With that mindset, I don't think there is much point in trying to push too hard what, what we think they're missing out on. I think we just have to show it by the way that we live and the way that we care for others and the joy that brings. Uh, I do not come to church out of a sense of obligation but because of the joy it gives me, even sitting here in the cold. I don't try to follow Jesus' ethical teaching because I'm afraid that he will be angry with me or punish me for breaking his rules, but because I know it's better for me and for others if I do. It's the life worth living. And Paul ends this section by saying, 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is another reason why I love Jesus. We're not saved only for our own good. Salvation is not an end in itself. We're saved to love God and our neighbours. We don't face the rest of our lives with a blank canvas, but with the knowledge that God cares about us and what we do. And he wants us to do things that he considers good. And he invites us to join him in bringing good to this world. And therefore, they are always his good works done through us. And that is the good life. This is what it means to be alive in Christ. He loved, his love makes each day better than it could possibly be without him. And it is all because of his grace, his willingness to share his creation with us, his willingness to die so that we may be right with him, and his willingness to show us the good life there is in following Jesus. We're going to respond to this with a familiar hymn, uh, with the words of, but with the words of the Apostle Paul in our ears, it's good to think about what each line means to us today. Amazing grace. Just, just think about each line and what it actually means for you now, knowing what Paul has been writing about here. Thanks. Thanks.